Well, good morning, Incarnation. Um, St. Augustine is famous for saying, it's not quite clear exactly whether he said it, but he's the one who's famous for saying, he who sings prays twice. Have you ever heard that quote? He who sings prays twice. It's a lovely quote, isn't it? It's, there's something about singing that connects with our hearts, right? So um, sometimes uh, I like to sing my opening prayer as a preacher, and uh, so I'm going to do that today, and this is sort of an old song. Now, now it's an old song, but if you know it, uh, I invite you to join with me. All right, this is our opening prayer. So. Take my life and form it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it to yours, to yours. To yours, to yours, O oh Lord. Amen. Amen. He who sings prays twice. All right, we'll pray it up. <laughs> well, um, we have a, a really, a really powerful, a really crucial passage to focus on today in our series on the Gospel of Luke. Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, I think it's, it's right to call it an epic moment in salvation history. It's here that Jesus was at his most vulnerable. It was the deep breath before the plunge. Gethsemane marks the inauguration of the passion of Christ, his suffering for the sins of the world, culminating in his death on the cross at Calvary. The Son of God, if we think about it, had spent eternity dwelling in inapproachable glory and light with the Father and with the Spirit. But here he was, as Paul would say, being found in human form and being humbled to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is wrestling with this vocation to be willingly manhandled by his own creatures. And God's plan here in the garden for a moment appears to be hanging on the edge of a knife as a fully human Jesus prayed alone in the darkness of a garden. And this morning I want to really just focus very simply on two things. The first half, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the theological significance. What, what does this passage mean? Why is this an epic moment in salvation history? And then in the second half, um, we're going to get a little bit more practical and, and just say, what, what can we actually learn from Jesus about prayer in this passage? Um, so we'll come to that more practical part in a bit. But first, let's talk about what Gethsemane is all about. What, why was this moment so crucial in salvation history? It's been said that um, the Bible is the story of two gardens, Eden and Gethsemane. The Bible is the story of two gardens. So let's tease that out together for a minute. I think that's a helpful statement. Eden was, of course, the site of humanity's downfall in Adam. And Gethsemane here is the site of the beginning of our triumph in Christ. And we could, I think, flesh out the parallels between these two gardens in dozens of different ways. So in Eden, the first Adam rebelled, and it brought death. 
In Gethsemane, the second Adam obeyed and brought life. In Eden, the command was easy. There was lots of other trees that they could eat from, right? Whereas in Gethsemane, the command was costly. It says that Jesus was in agony. He was in agony. In Eden, they were tempted to be like God and grasp the forbidden fruit, right? And in Gethsemane, though Jesus was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Again, we could point out that in Eden, Eve conversed with the serpent. In Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to his father. In Eden, the angels blocked Adam from the tree of life after the fall, right? And in Gethsemane, an angel is sent to strengthen Jesus, and the cross would become the new tree of life. I remember this connection between these two gardens was even picked up in the movie The Passion of the Christ. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen it. I've actually only ever seen it once. I haven't been able to kind of like muster up the courage to watch it again, although I probably should at some point. And uh, uh, the, the opening scene in the movie is actually the Garden of Gethsemane because this is the beginning of the Passion. And it's probably my favorite scene in the movie because we see Jesus and, he, and he's praying in the darkness and his, his apostles are falling asleep and we see him and he's praying to the Lord. He's wrestling with God and then... What do we see? Um, the, the shot moves and we see this large snake just sort of slithering toward him, right? And then, and then it switches again back to Jesus and we see Jesus pleading. We see Jesus in agony. He's sweating. Um, he's trembling. And we see this, this snake, this serpent slithering towards him. And then uh, finally you see J Jesus rise with this sort of resolute look in his face. And he just lifts up his foot like this, and it just comes crashing down, smash, right on the head of the snake. You guys remember that? So much is communicated in that short scene. It's a reference back to Eden, of course. It's a prophecy about Eve's offspring and about the demise of Satan. It says in Genesis 3.15 that the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the offspring, and the offspring is going to bruise the head of the serpent, right? So this film is saying that at the start of the passion, uh, you know, in this in this moment of resisting to te temptation of of uh, of resisting the temptation to run from the suffering of the cross, of to go his own way, Jesus is finally crushing the head of that ancient serpent. And and I think from a theological perspective, this connection back to uh, to Eden is actually just very helpful on many levels. In some sense, Gethsemane is the new garden. Jesus is the new and better Adam. In Eden, Adam rebelliously ate the fruit. In Gethsemane, Jesus obediently accepted the cup. Right? Jesus prays in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but yours be done. So what, what cup could Jesus be referring to here? Is... Um, is it a literal cup? Is it the Passover cup that he just blessed with his uh, disciples earlier in chapter 22? No, here the cup is figurative, right? Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets spoke of a cup of wrath, which was a symbol of God pouring out his judgment upon sin and injustice. This cup of wrath turns up again and again in scriptures. For example, in Psalm 75, verse 8, 
It says, for the hand of the Lord, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to its dregs. In our reading today from Isaiah 51, you heard just a few minutes ago, this cup of wrath is fed first to the Israelites in verse 17, and then to the surrounding nations. God goes on to say that the people will be drunk. They'll be stumbling around. They'll be drunk, but not with wine. Instead, it will be the bowl of God's wrath that causes them to stumble. So here the cup is portrayed almost like some sort of extreme form of medicine, which the Lord applies to his people who are operating in total rebellion. Right? It's this, it's this, this is, this is what has to happen now. If there's going to be any opportunity of repentance, right? Um, God force feeds them this strong mixture of discipline through acts of judgment. And all this sounds harsh to us, right? Um, we don't like this stuff about God's wrath and judgment. I actually remember a conversation um, at a table in seminary, uh, and we were talking about the song, In Christ Alone. You know, In Christ Alone, Our Hope is Found. And this one guy said, you know, I don't really like that song. Or I don't like the line in that song where it says, when on the cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. He said, I don't, I don't really like that. He's like, I think, I think we should change it when we sing it to chapel to the love of God was magnified. And uh, that's, that's, a really, that's actually a really good line. I'm like, where'd you come up with that, right? Because at the cross, when Jesus died, the love of God was magnified, right? But then uh, some wise person at the table said, yeah, but, but why was the love of God magnified? And then everybody at the same time said, because the wrath of God was satisfied. <laughs> right? That's what was so loving about the cross, that, that, that Jesus Christ in his own innocent person bore the judgment that we and our sins deserve. So God's love and God's justice, God's mercy and God's wrath were satisfied on the cross. The wrath of God is an important biblical reality. It's the idea that our evil and abuse and selfishness and oppression makes God furious. Right? Psalm 7, verse 11. 711, you should remember this one. It says that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. You think you feel a sense of moral indignation about what's going on in the world? About the wars and the racial oppression in our cities and, you know, the, the persecution of Christians throughout the world or the unborn thousands that are terminated every week? You think you feel a sense of righteous, righteous indignation about that? Well, how much more so does a completely righteous, a completely pure, a completely holy heart a righteous judge, feel indignation for those things every day. And it's a good thing he does. Otherwise, he wouldn't be good. But what does all this have to do with the sinless, innocent Son of God? If this image of the cup of wrath is only applied to those who are in total rebellion... What does it have to do with Jesus? Well, I hope the answer is clear to us. Jesus took the cup not for his own sins, but for the sins of the whole world. 
Jesus took the cup for you, for me. He had just explained it in the Lord's Supper when he said, this is my body, snap, that was broken for you. Not for his own sake, for our sake. He died bearing in his own innocent person the punishment that our sins deserve. So the wages of sin is death, and Jesus received those wages in our place. As Jesus said elsewhere, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul put it this way in our Galatians 3 reading. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it was written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I mean, that almost sounds blasphemous. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. It's not just that Jesus took the curse. He became a curse for us. He became a byword. So at Gethsemane and ultimately at the cross, Jesus took the curse upon himself for our sake. Even more than that, he became a curse. <coughs> That's why it was so hard for the man Jesus to handle this moment in Gethsemane. There, you know, throughout history, there have been many who have faced martyrdom with greater serenity than Jesus does here. We talked about Socrates a few weeks back. He, he went coolly off to his final destruction, right? But they weren't carrying the sins of the world on their shoulders. They weren't taking the curse due to all sin upon themselves when they were martyred. Jesus was hard-pressed on every side. The name Gethsemane actually means oil press. So that's a device used to press, extract olive oil. So the olives are pressed until the oil is squeezed out through the skin of the olive. And Jesus <clears throat> is portrayed as going through a similar ordeal in this passage, is he not? It says in verse 44 that his agony was so great that, quote, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. That's what Jesus was like an olive being pressed and his blood was coming out of his pores. And you know, the interesting thing is, is that Luke is the only gospel writer who mentions this, the physician Luke. And we know actually through modern research, through modern science, that this is actually a real phenomenon. That sometimes when people go through extreme anxiety and extreme personal horror, they can actually sweat blood. So these are heavy images to be sure, but before we begin treating Jesus like just a helpless victim, we need to remember that this plan had been decided by the Holy Trinity before the foundation of the earth. Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. None of this surprised Jesus. He'd been telling his disciples about it all along, right? He had come to Jerusalem for no other reason. He says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I, I've noticed that there's this movement um, to sort of talk about um, the cross, the crucifixion, as if somehow the Trinity sort of temporarily disbanded and the Father is just sort of like bullying the Son. But friends, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. Certainly the Son of God 
is rightfully and uniquely called our Redeemer. But the scriptures also say that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit was involved. Hebrews 10.16 says that it was through the eternal spirit that Christ offered himself without blemish to God. Through the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself. I, I was meditating on that recently and I was just awestruck because I, you know, I never really pictured Jesus hanging on the cross and being full of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that just a striking image? Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit offering himself to the Father for the sins of the world. It changes the way that we think about the cross, doesn't it? So the point was not that Jesus Christ was overwhelmed because he didn't know the plan or something like that. He had been telling his disciples since back in Luke 9, he was in agony because the weight of the darkness, because the curse that he was taking upon himself was so huge. That's what Gethsemane is all about. Jesus loving us unto death. Jesus drinking the cup of judgment that was due to the world. Jesus flipping the script on Eden. So that's sort of the big picture view, the view from 30,000 feet. So now we're going to zoom in a little bit because in the midst of all this high theology, it's also easy to miss that on a more basic level, this is also a passage about prayer, isn't it? Um, turn to it, if you would, if you haven't yet. Luke 22. It's like 880-something. Huh? 882. And actually... Um, this passage uh, might, might just have been used as a common way of instructing people in prayer in the early church because its structure, its structure is set as, as a chiasm. And a chiasm is a form of storytelling that was used especially in oral cultures to help you remember things. And it's, it's, it's where like the first and the last event are the same and the second and the second to last event are the same, they're parallel, the third and the third to last event, and then there's, then there's some sort of climax being communicated. Well, when we look at Luke 22, verses 40 through 46, we see this kind of structure. So in verse 40, the disciples are commanded to pray, and then the command is issued again in 46, so the first event matches the last. And then Jesus withdraws to pray in verse 41, and we see him returning from prayer in verse 45. Jesus kneels, and later Jesus rises. And what happens? Uh, so, so Jesus prays, then he prays more earnestly. And what happens at the climax of this passage? Um, the Father responds to Jesus' prayer by strengthening him. Luke's point is that the Father wasn't actually completely silent at the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't, he didn't change the plan of salvation, but he did give Jesus the strength he needed to work things out, to walk this out. So that's the structure, but what does it have to teach us about prayer? I want to highlight four things here. First, um, Jesus teaches us that prayer protects us from temptation. It's a protection against temptation. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 40, pray that you may not enter, enter into temptation. And then he repeats this warning again, as we said in verse 46 for emphasis. So this kind of got me to imagine, like, what would it have been like if when Eve was being tempted and, like, confused by the serpent in the garden, if she said, like, hold on, let me talk to the Lord about this. 
Like, what would happen, right? Because that's what happens with Jesus. You know, Satan's been biding his time until Jesus is vulnerable. He's been waiting for, as Luke 4.13 says, the opportune time. The opportune time to tempt Jesus. Jesus talks to his Father in the midst of it. Right? He doesn't just sit there and mince words with the devil. So the temptation doesn't interrupt Jesus' trust and intimacy with the Father. He refuses to isolate himself from God because of his situation. Does that resonate with your experience? This connection between temptation and avoidance of God in prayer? And I, I feel like for me, oftentimes the first temptation, before the temptation to actively sin, is just the temptation to avoid prayer. Right? To just avoid God. It's like, I, I'll go it alone. Jesus is like, without me, you can do nothing. <laughs> right? To avoid intimate contact with God. And once we enter that place of intentional isolation, we're on shaky ground. Right? That's this, this principle of intimacy, you know, uh, a man is, is far less likely to transgress his marriage if, 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 they ha- if there's a sense of ongoing intimacy and contact. And, hey, I, I had a, I had, we had a date, we talk, we, we love each other. I mean, it, it doesn't have an excuse either way, let me just, let me just say that. But, um, but it's far less likely to happen when that intimacy is maintained, Right? If we had only met with the Father and renewed that intimacy and and had him remind us of his love for us, we would have been strengthened in that temptation that we fell into, just as Jesus was in Gethsemane, because prayer protects us from temptation. The second thing that Jesus teaches us about prayer is that posture matters. Posture matters. I was just talking with the children about this, right? When the time came for Jesus to plead with the Father, it says in verse 41, that he knelt down and prayed. So Jesus entered into the prayer with his body, not just with his words, not just with his thoughts, right? And it was not uncommon for Jesus to assume certain postures in prayer. Actually, on several points, he's, he's pictured as lifting up his eyes to heaven when he prays. Um, elsewhere in Scripture, God's people are, are um, told to lift up holy hands in prayer. They're, um, they're called to meditate on the Lord while they're lying in their bed at night. They're called at times, they're exhorted to leap for joy, to jump for joy. And on the one hand, if we're called to pray without ceasing, then sort of like any posture is probably okay, right? You know, um, you know Brother Lawrence washing the dishes or, you know, we're sitting down. Or, you know, uh, I, I need to be reminded that any posture is okay when I'm praying with my kids because they just want to lay crazy and have their legs sticking up. and like, okay, let's, let's concentrate. Let's fold our hands. Um, any posture will do to some extent because the posture of our heart is much more important than the posture of our bodies. All right, no one would want to dispute that. But this doesn't mean, and oftentimes we zoom to think that it means that the posture of our bodies is totally unimportant, right? But our posture can be an expression of our heart, right? Right? We sit because we're at peace. We dance because we're joyful. We kneel because we're contrite. And sometimes actually it works the other way. It flows the other way. Instead of our bodies following our hearts, our hearts can actually be trained to follow our body. That's why the psalmist says, I command my body 
to praise the Lord. What does that look like? Well, if your heart is having a hard time remembering that God is worthy to be praised, try lifting up your hands. And, and oftentimes what will happen is it will remind your heart that God is mighty, that God is holy. Right? Or if you know you've messed up in your heart of heart and you don't feel any sense of remorse, try lying prostrate before God Almighty. He might remind your heart. You know, that he might remind you of the actual state of your heart. Or if you have trouble con- concentrating in prayer, you know, try, you know, turning your phone off. Amen. Spitting your gum out. You know, and, uh, and sitting up straight can be very helpful. These things can be very helpful. You've probably noticed that Anglicans tend to take um, posture seriously. So in general... Um, you know, we, we stand when we sing, we sit when we listen, and we kneel when we pray, in general. Some exceptions. We cross ourselves to bind onto ourselves, onto our bodies and souls, the name of the triune God. Right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we come forward to receive Holy Communion, we, we have our palms outstretched like this. Why? Because it's not, it's not appropriate to take the grace of God. We receive the grace of God. I remember um, one time Father Eric down at St. Peter's told this hilarious story where there, was this, uh, where there was this real obstinate guy that was like, what's all this crazy stuff you Anglicans are doing? You know, are you trying to earn your salvation or what's going on here? And, and uh, Father Eric was trying to explain, no, it's a, it's a way of entering into worship with our bodies it can train our hearts. It can kind of jog us to worship and prayer. And, uh, and the guy's like, I don't know about all that, you know. And, and then uh, Father Eric ended up seeing him at an FSU game, like a few weeks later. And the guy's like, oh. And uh, Father Eric pulls him aside at church the next week. He's like, I thought you don't you know, put any meaning to entering into things with your body. What was all this on Saturday, you know? My land. <laughs> That's all of my Father Eric impression you'll give for today. <laughs> the point is, is that while our posture in prayer is not the most important, it's not the most important thing, our bodies actually matter. What we do with our bodies can be an expression of our heart, and they can remind our heart of the truth about God and of ourselves. In fact, I'll just take a moment to, to plug this event. I wasn't going to do this, but March 25th, from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., I highly recommend everybody here sign up for this seminar on the theology of the body. Um, it's about human sexuality, but it's, it's also just about what does it mean to be embodied creatures and to have the desires and the urges that God, that, that God gave us, and what does it mean to live with those faithfully. I highly recommend attending that. Some of the best teaching I ever heard on the topic. Um, excuse me. Third... Jesus teaches us about the importance of perseverance in prayer. And actually, if we read everything that Jesus had to say about prayer in the Gospels, you would find that he, he addresses perseverance maybe more than any other topic. He teaches about it. He tells parables about it. He exhorts his disciples to persevere themselves, right? Perseverance is so key for Jesus because it's an outward demonstration of a strong inward faith. That's what perseverance is. What some have called holy stubbornness. Right? 
in the face of, see, of a seemingly hopeless situation, we're still trusting God. We're still taking him at his word. Still believing that he's working out his purposes. Still believing that he deserves all the glory. Jesus says, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Perseverance is important. And uh, it, it's the kind of faith that, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had before King Nebuchadnezzar, right? That where, they're, where they're like, um, you know, our God has the ability to, to save us from you, but even if he doesn't, we still will not bow to you, you know? Throw us in the furnace if you need to. It's this holy stubbornness of, of insisting that God can, but whatever God allows... Um, whatever he's requiring of my faithfulness, I submit to because I trust him. In verse 41, Jesus prayed, and then in verse 44 it says that being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. He's persevering here. Notice that the suffering um, that Jesus is experiencing, um, he doesn't interpret that as a sign that he's doing something wrong. Right, when he experiences suffering, but instead that he needs God all the more. It says in, in Matthew and Mark's version that Jesus actually returns to the same prayer three different times. And in contrast, in verse 45, Jesus finds the disciples sleeping for sorrow. So they haven't, they haven't yet learned the lesson of perseverance in prayer. They will, but they haven't yet learned it. So Jesus teaches us that prayer protects us from temptations, that posture matters, and that we're called to persevere in prayer. And finally, fourth, Jesus teaches us that in prayer, God conforms our will to his plan. And this is sort of the ultimate example of this principle, isn't it? Jesus says, anyone who tries to keep his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life for my sake will truly find it. This is with this, the ultimate example. It's the Garden of Gethsemane is the cross where Jesus doesn't try to keep his life. And what does the Father do? He raises him up on the third day in glory. Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And I think this strikes us as shocking, right? Because it makes Jesus seem so vulnerable. He seems so human. He is human. <laughs> He's fully human. <clears throat> Also fully God. Come to catechesis hour. <laughs> Jesus says, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Right? That's him expressing sincerely his desire to the Father. If you're willing, remove this cup from me. This, this shows that Jesus doesn't just like have some sort of death wish, right? He didn't embrace the cross as a way of escaping the world. He embraced it as a way of serving the world. According to a um, 7th century church father named Maximus the Confessor, besides having like one of the coolest names in church history, <laughs> according to him, we shouldn't just see Jesus' humanity in the remove this cup from me part, but actually, he says we should especially see Jesus' humanity even more so in the not my will but yours be done part. That's the part that seems so unreal to us. It's like, how could somebody do that? How could somebody submit themselves to the Father in that way? And the problem of our consistent rebellion against God, according to Maximus, is not that we're only human, but that we're not human enough. 
That's his point. It's not that we're, you know, we rebel because we're only human. No, it's because we're not human enough. Here in Jesus's, thy will be done, we see what true humanity was always meant to look like. The image of God has been so fully restored that we don't even recognize it. We're like, I don't know, that's not what it means to be human. No, that is. That's what God intended, right? Even as Mary said, let it be unto me according to your word. Edward Oakes writes this. He says, this is surely the experience of every believer. The Jesus who comes across in the Gospels always seems completely human, and yet strangely not, as if he came from another world. Not in the manner, to be sure, of a visitor from another planet, but as one truly like us, yet still so strangely different. How can this be? Well, according to Maximus, the answer is simply this. The humanity of Christ reveals the divine precisely by being so human. Guys, we're created in the image of God. We are meant to reflect the glory of our creator. But that reflection mirror has just gotten so muddy, so dim. But in Jesus, we see what the new humanity, the original humanity, was meant to look like. Jesus makes his own desire known, right? He, 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 he makes the desire of his heart known to God. But on a deeper level, through the furnace of prayer, he shows that his primary concern is to do the Father's will, not his own. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I only do what I see the Father doing. In other words, Jesus was the first to truly sing, take my life and form it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it to yours, to yours, O Lord. Jesus was the first to truly sing that with his life. Jesus was the first to sing it, but he should by no means be the last. Right? As the Apostle Paul puts it to all believers at the beginning of Romans 12, this is what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Is this talking about Jesus? This is talking about us. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, and accept, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. This is what God has in mind. This is the new humanity that God has in mind for every person who has put their trust in Christ. Not just that their sins would be forgiven because Jesus drank the cup, the cup of wrath that we deserve, but that he would fill us with his spirit and we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we would look more and more like Jesus, not because we're the son of God, but because he is fully the son of man. Amen. Father, make us the fully human kind of humans. Amen.